0: This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Do you ever binge? And by binge, I mean, do you ever eat something that you know you shouldn't, you know you don't want to, and as soon as you eat it, you feel bad for having eaten it? It's pretty common, right? The entire diet industry is based on this idea that without systems and rules and points and accountability that will make bad decisions, we will eat the wrong things, we will eat things that we don't want to eat. So when you think about that, it's a pretty astounding paradox that we try to stop ourselves from doing things that we don't want to do. But there it is. And of course, we can blame the food industry for creating all these frankenfoods, all these high sugar, high salt, high fat concoctions that never existed in nature that hijack our pleasure centers and turn us pretty much into idiots, doing things that compromise our health, our looks, our mood, our energy, and ultimately the quality of our lives. But there it is. And I'm as guilty as anyone else of falling victim to I eat things that I shouldn't, I eat things too fast, I eat too many of them, I eat too frequently. And when I'm not eating, I'm fantasizing and obsessing over those foods. So today's conversation has been very liberating for me. Dr. Glenn Livingston is a renowned psychologist for many years in clinical practice got into marketing consulting as a psychologist, became an entrepreneur and a teacher of entrepreneurs, now runs a coaching school. And you'd think a guy like that would have his act together. And in most areas, he does. But as he explains in this interview, when it came to food, he was pretty much a junkie. He described sitting with a client and when he was a consulting psychologist, And all he could think about was the entire pizza he was going to stick into his mouth when the session was over. Luckily for us, Glenn didn't leave it at that. He explored, he journaled, he studied, and he came up with a system that is both stunning in its simplicity, incredible, at least in my experience and those of some of my clients in its effectiveness. And I have to warn you, it might piss you off. It might make you angry because Glenn has some very pointed words about most of the ways in which we deal with addiction and powerlessness and addiction as a disease in the society. And Glenn feels, first of all, it's not evidence based. It doesn't really work. And it's disempowering and disrespectful to human beings. So if you are a 12 step fan, you're going to be challenged by this interview. But I hope you'll also be interested, I hope you'll be open-minded, and I hope some of you listening to this will find it as liberating, mentally and physiologically, as I have. So without further ado, Dr. Glenn Livingston, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: I'm very happy to be here. Nice to see you, Howie.
0: Yeah, we've done a lot of calls over a lot of topics For a lot of years it feels like we're, we're having sort of a parallel careers you getting back into uh, health and wellness. And so briefly, tell us about the project you've been working on around eating. You
1: know, it's interesting. You mentioned that we both have parallel careers in as much as we're educated men who meandered into marketing, did well there, but felt like something was missing and meandered back into health and wellness. I am a psychologist by training and I originally worked with well over a thousand clients going on 20 years ago now. Then found myself drawn more to the marketing world because my wife is a professional marketing researcher, wound up doing a lot of consulting for large companies, many of which included those in the food manufacturing and distribution business, Lipton, Kraft, Nabisco, those types of places. Had a marketing career as a consultant and an educator. And during that period of time, what was kind of unbeknownst to people was I was what you would probably call an exercise bulimic these days, which means that I never purged. I always thought the idea of putting my finger in my throat was repulsive, but I really liked to eat, and I discovered that if I exercised a lot, I could eat a lot. You can't do that as easily once you have responsibilities and a life, and I found that it was difficult to stop binging, even though I couldn't exercise as much. There was a time when I weighed 40, 50 pounds more than I do now, you know, with no muscularity or anything like that. I was never 500 pounds or anything like that, but I was absolutely, utterly and totally obsessed with food and would sometimes be sitting with patients and just couldn't wait for it to be over so I can go get a whole pizza or (laughs) Always thinking about what the next meal was going to be and finding it difficult to be in the present and really enjoy my life. And I thought there was something wrong with me. I thought that maybe I had some crazy disease or maybe there was something biochemically off about me or that something about my upbringing that just caused me to have these ridiculous cravings where nothing else mattered besides dislodging my jaw and emptying most of the delicatessen into it.
0: And that's such a common model in the world of eating and eating disorders, disordered eating, emotional eating, is this idea of there's something wrong with some of us, that something's broken or we're highly susceptible. I did an interview recently with Susan Pierce Thompson, who she's developed a susceptibility scale. And there are people that I talk to who see their eating the same way that an alcoholic would see alcoholism, that they're somehow dealt a different deck of cards, a different hand than the rest of us. You acknowledge in the book that there's some value in not blaming yourself, but that ultimately this is all disempowering. So did you find for yourself that that view that there was something wrong with you was ultimately stopping you from moving forward and getting better?
1: The view that there's something wrong with you, it eliminates the shame. It eliminates a lot of the shame and the guilt. But it can do that at a tremendous cost because you're kind of abdicating responsibility and authority when you say that. And you see, our culture supports the notion that addiction is a disease and there's no human defense against certain cravings. And while it's certainly true that our society has developed foods and drugs for that matter that press our evolutionary buttons to a level that just didn't exist before. There were no chocolate bars in the Savannah, right? Well, that's certainly true. What's gotten lost in that whole dialogue is the idea that we really do have the ability to say no. We have the ability to define the kind of person that we want to be resist temptation, channel our impulses into what we want to accomplish in the context of a civilized life. With that comes the necessity of, for a short period when you make a mistake, having the ability to feel guilty, not neurotically or psychotically guilty, but upset with yourself for having made that mistake, and being willing to draw some lines in the sand and really define for yourself how you want to behave in the future. And I think that that's getting lost in the dialogue today. People are taken with the notion of powerlessness and they don't realize, for example, that they could say, I'm never going to have a chocolate bar again. That's almost heresy to say in today's day and age, I'm never going to have a chocolate bar again. I would be accused of being a perfectionist and people would say, you can't know what you're never going to do again and what if you have a weak day and... Don't you know that willpower has been scientifically proven to exist only in discrete quantities and to act like a muscle which fatigues throughout the course of the day? And so it's almost heresy to say something like that, but I think that ultimately it's the only real defense that we have against the intense pressure on our evolutionary buttons from all of the super rewarding foods that have been developed that can lead us to relinquish control and eat a lot more than is in our best judgment. Does
0: that make sense? Yeah. And I think about that. I think about when I discovered the plant-based world and all these people who were really struggling to adhere to a way of eating that they believed in. I thought about growing up around people who kept kosher and how easy it was for those people to resist the temptation of cheeseburgers and bacon and eggs and even Oreo cookies because they had animal fat and hydrox didn't. There was something that those people were doing right, that there was no willpower involved. They didn't start quaking every time they passed Burger King.
1: I'll tell you what that thing is, is they've decided that they're not the kind of person who eats non-kosher food. They've made a personal decision that for them it was wrong, right? Because they wanted to keep kosher. And willpower is only necessary when you have to make a decision. But if you decided that you're not the kind of person who eats shrimp or lobster or, gosh, I'm not kosher so I don't know all the rules, (laughs) but if you decided that you're not the kind of person who eats those types of things, then you're not fatigued by the onslaught of shrimp and lobster and all those other non-kosher goodies because it's not even an option and we don't tend to crave things that we know we can never have. What's torturous is making the decision. To eliminate the need for willpower, it doesn't have to be something that you never have again, but it has to be something that a decision is required. So if you've kind of set up a set of rules for yourself beforehand that draw really clear lines in the sand, then you're not going to be taxing your willpower. Oh, for example, maybe you made a rule for yourself that you only ever eat pretzels at Major League Baseball games. Well, you're not going to be tempted outside of a Major League Baseball game, because you know that you're not the kind of person who eats pretzels outside of a Major League Baseball stadium, right? So you can set up conditional rules also. But the notion that we can't live without rules and we're doomed to give in to our impulses if we get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, because willpower is just a fatigable muscle, I think that's damaging. And I think what I wanted to do was make a contribution to the dialogue which says that, no, you can define the kind of person you want to be and then willpower is really not necessary.
0: Gotcha. So I want to get back to kind of your story and how you climbed out of the, you know, the open jaw, empty deli hole, and also about the concepts in the project and in your book, Never Binge Again. How did it work for you? It's such a simple concept. As I emailed you when I finished reading the manuscript of your book, the thing that came to mind was this Bob Newhart clip, where he plays a psychologist who talks to people for five minutes, (laughs) And all he does, the woman comes to him and says, you know, I'm afraid of being buried alive in a box. And he yells at her, stop it. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, there's a simplicity. How did you come to just telling yourself, stop it? I don't do this anymore. I'm not the sort of person who binges, who eats out of control.
1: Well, I actually kind of borrowed it from writers who were working in the drug and alcohol market, but it required some modification because of the complexity of food behaviors. There's an author named Jack Trimpey over at rationalrecovery.org, and he makes a very strong case that the 12-step programs are really not supported by the scientific evidence. And then he goes on to provide an alternative approach, which I personally found extraordinarily appealing given my experience both... Personally and with all the patients that I'd work with, I just thought that his very simplistic approach was much more effective and didn't require me to define myself according to the problem that I had, it defined myself more according to the solution.
0: That's really what I was asking about is not just related to, you know, your particular project or food, but just this idea that on the one hand, people who are in 12-step programs have my undying admiration for their courage, their steadfastness, their consistency, their willpower. And on the other hand, some part of my brain, and I've never been to one, so I'm, I'm speaking completely without context, but some part of my brain is going, isn't that reinforcing a label that you might just drop one day and somehow feeding it as well as defeating it? It's defining
1: their whole personality around the problem. I'm an alcoholic. That's who I am now. And I'm different than everybody else. I don't really want to batch the 12-step programs, but the scientific evidence for that is really bad. It's a very difficult thing to study in a controlled double-blind experiment because of the anonymous nature of the program itself. But the only attempts to have done that have either shown them to be at parity with doing nothing at all, or worse than doing nothing at all. Works for some people and you know more power to them, but the scientific evidence behind it is poor. I think that's part of the reason. I think that the notion that you can't quit but you can only abstain one day at a time, I actually think that's a damaging notion. I think that in many ways, the only solution for a serious addiction is to quit. And in the absence of evidence that proves otherwise, I think it's actually damaging to tell people that they can't quit. I don't think that's a reasonable hypothesis or a healthy thing for an organization that's supposed to treat alcoholics or or doctors to, to do for people. I think that people can quit. I saw it in my practice over and over again, and I wanted to apply that to food. And traditionally, you're told that you can't apply the notion of abstinence to food because it's such a complex behavior, and you could quit cigarettes or drinking or alcohol or drugs. You don't need them at all, but you have to eat three times a day, and there are so many decisions you have to make. So it required some modifications to make that work.
0: What did you do in your own mind to get better? And when did you see it working? What were the steps for you?
1: I defined a pig inside of me. I never just picked up a chocolate bar, right? There was always a set of thoughts that went on before and even if i didn't know them at the time if i look in retrospect there were things that i told myself before i ate that first bite of chocolate I said, well you know it's dark chocolate dark chocolate's not so bad for it. it's got antioxidants and there's not really any dairy in this and you're having natural dark chocolate bar and by the way i think for many people a dark chocolate bar could be a wonderful thing I just happened to get carried away with it, and I've got a sensitivity to high triglycerides and high blood pressure, so there's a whole host of reasons that it's bad for me. There was a series of lies that I would tell myself before I would do that. You can probably just have one. It won't be a big deal, right? And I decided that rather than treating that as a part of myself, In gestalt therapy, one of the ways that I was trained, you think of all those little voices in your head, little sub-conversations, you try to integrate them all and love and accept them all as part of the curative process. But I decided that in this case that was wrong, that although it was a part of myself, that's really the worst part of myself, and I was disgusted with it, and I wanted to separate from it entirely. I defined a pig inside of myself, the author of Rational Recovery calls the drug and alcohol thing a beast inside of him so that's kind of where I got the idea but to find a pig inside of myself and I just made a really clear rule that said I will never have chocolate again and then I listened for what the pig would say how the pig would squeal
0: <laughs>
1: and if you commit to never having chocolate again then that pig is definitely going to say a bunch of things right oh you can't do that that's ridiculous you're going to need some chocolate to put you in a good mood so you can get your work done. Or you're going to need some chocolate to get some energy after you didn't get a really good night's sleep so that you can do your exercise in the morning or need a treat every now and then. And-
0: right. My pig is saying, you know that never doesn't work. Have some so that you don't fall into a binge. My pig is trying to take my side. It's pretending to be my ally.
1: Exactly. It has access to your native intelligence, so it will argue all sides of the argument in order to talk you into getting it stuff. That's all it really wants. I decided I had a pig inside me, and anything that it said that might even remotely suggest that I was going to do it again was squeal. It was like the pig squealing. And the things that I was not going to have belonged in my pig's trough, not on my plate. And whenever I experienced a craving for chocolate in this example, I would say, well, that's pig slop and I don't eat pig slop. And that was it. (laughs) And it just kind of cut through. Now, I have to say I wasn't perfect, right? And this is another part of the modification of what other people have done. But it just cut through all of the complicated searching for what happened in my upbringing and what biochemical problem I might have and do I have a nutritional deficiency and everything was so complicated until that point and all of a sudden it was just really simple and I could hear the pig squeal. I could hear what the pig was saying.
0: What I started really enjoying about the book was how simple the categories are, right? There's always, never, and sometimes.
1: The question is, if drawing a line in the sand and putting some food in your pig's trough and the rest of it for you, if that's really what works, then how do you draw those lines in the sand? And I think that it's first and foremost very important that everybody defines their own food plan. I think that one of my pig's early ways that I discovered it was fooling me was I would read XYZ diet book and I would try to follow that 100% and then the pig would say, oh, that guy is less than perfect and this doesn't really work for you and you'll have to read some other diet guy's book to figure this out, right? And so I was jumping from health expert to health expert really representing the pig's attempt to have to put off the decision forever so that I could continue to binge. The first principle of developing a food plan that I think is really essential is for people to take 100% responsibility for deciding for themselves. Because most people who have had trouble with binge eating or even just overeating, they have a pretty darn good idea of what a healthy day of food looks like for them and what an unhealthy day of food looks like for them. And how frequently in their ideal mind they want to have a little bit of leeway. And I don't know that people have to read one more diet book to develop a food plan. So I think it's really important you start with that principle and don't set up a dependency on some other expert.
0: One of the things I loved in the book was these paragraphs about why you have to own it. You say, whose hands are going to grab the car key, start the engine, drive to the market, put the food in the car, take out the money, give it to the cashier, put the bags in the trunk, bring them inside, put them away, choose the meals, prepare them, get out the fork, stick it in, pick it up to your lips and put it in your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say, you know, I've heard this before from people, but it was never from like a psychology perspective. And it kind of seemed a little bit like they were minimizing. Like I know a Cambodian Buddhist monk who would say, you know, the cigarettes aren't chasing you. You're the one who picks them up and buys them and puts them in your mouth. Right. Like, And there is a way in which that message can come across as a little insensitive. But as I read it in your context, it was just a huge relief. I'm not exactly sure why. Reading your book was tough medicine for me. In certain ways, it was like a wake-up slap. How so? Well, say, look, you own this, buddy. And if you want to stop, you can stop. And if you don't want to stop, you don't have to stop. It's all up to you. And because you are 100% responsible for everything you put in your mouth, you can change it if you want.
1: Yeah, I want to empower people and restore the notion of free will. And it's actually when you allow the appetites to overtake you, it's actually a fairly frightening experience. It's very disempowering. It overcomes your consciousness in some way. It's the opposite of being mindful and present and able to and fully enjoy your life because you become a slave to those impulses. And to a certain extent, everybody feels that slavery. They feel like it's impossible to resist X, Y, or Z. And so what my goal in the book with those types of phrases, those types of paragraphs, was to restore the sense of agency, to really give you the power. And that's why you felt relieved.
0: At first, I felt scared. I don't want this kind of power. I want to have crutches to hold on to. I don't want to do the physical therapy and be able to walk again. Don't pry the crutches out of my warm living hands.
1: Well, can I can I ask you a kind of a crazy question? Yeah. Do you think that you felt scared, or did your pig feel scared?
0: Mm. Well, partly as a podcast host, I felt a little scared for the feelings of the people who are going to be listening. I was like, boy, this is going to be tough medicine because there's this whole concept in health of not blaming the victim. It's a healthy concept, and we also can take it overboard by telling the victim they aren't responsible, which means they don't have to change and which gets translated into they can't change. So I feel like part of me was frightened about this conversation being misinterpreted as saying, look, it's all your fault.
1: I could say two things to address that very powerfully, if you don't mind the diversion. Go ahead. So the first is that we live in a culture which encourages us to binge. We live in a culture where it's okay for the food industry to put as many calories in as small a space for the cheapest price possible, remove the nutrients, make it look really good, and then advertise it as sexy as they can possibly make it so that it's as appealing as possible and kind of fools you into thinking that it's good for you. We live in that kind of a culture. There's a tremendous amount of pressure to eat poorly, eat more than is good for us. And I think there have been a lot of movies and authors who talk about the problems with that.
0: Right. My friend Peter Bregman talks about having to sneak food into the movies. Right.
1: (laughs) Right. There's something wrong with that. That's really crazy. And so we should all forgive ourselves for the problem that we encounter like that. And I appreciate you bringing this to the surface because it can't come off like that. The second thing I can say is that there is evidence that perfectionism is a setup for indulgence. But perfectionism is the wrong attitude after you've made a mistake. If you made a mistake, then the right attitude is to be really kind to yourself, to be intrigued about what happened, how can you do it better in the future. And once you've examined yourself and you feel like you've learned what you need to learn, the idea is to let go of the guilt and let go of the self-castigation and move on. So I'm a gentle soul, and I encourage people to be gentle on themselves. However, before you set out to accomplish a goal, like never having chocolate again. So for example, I have made mistakes in the past, even though I said I would never have it again, and I have had chocolate again. And I looked very carefully at what the pig told me, and I identified that, and I made a couple of alterations to my nutritional plan, and I just sit out again and let go of that self castigation and move forward. That's really what I recommend for people. I recommend that they're forgiving and kind to themselves in retrospect. But prospectively, going forward, if you're going to climb a mountain, you don't say, well, maybe I'll make it to the top and maybe I won't and progress that perfection. If you really, really want to see the top of that mountain, you've got to visualize yourself there. You've got to bring the right amount of water and you've got to get a map and you haven't get enough sleep the night before and you have to say, I am 100% committed to get to the top of that mountain. And the people that climb the mountains and get to the top are the ones that have that attitude. So you forgive yourself if you don't But you go forward with a stalwart determination that nobody's going to stop you and anything. And with that determination in mind, any thought that crosses your mind that says, well, maybe you're not going to make it, you can dismiss that and more thoroughly commit to your positive outcome in that way. So I'm thinking with regards to your concern about blaming the victim or stimulating more self-castigation that understanding the context in which it's appropriate to apply perfectionism and which it's appropriate to apply forgiveness will help. And I think understanding the culture in which we live and how it's almost impossible not to grow up in this culture without an eating problem. I'm hoping that helps.
0: Great. It reminds me of a line from a shamanic psychologist Alberto Violdo, who talked about the importance for fully realized adults to keep secrets from themselves. Say more. What do you mean? In the moment that you're saying, I am never going to eat chocolate again, there's some part of you that knows, well, if I do fall, I have a plan. I have a series of questions to ask myself. I have a way to get back up. But at that moment, you hide that part from yourself.
1: Yes. Yes. That's a very good way to look at it. I hadn't heard that before. This is just a simple way that I might suggest you think about developing a food plan. I think your food plan, you should be confident that it's nutritionally complete, that you know there's going to be more than enough for you to eat all the time on it, and that it's simple enough to remember throughout the day. And the four categories that I suggest would be to think about things that you would be better off never doing again, things you'd like to commit to never doing again, things that you would like to always do every day, things that you do only in some conditions, and things that you can do unconditionally. In those four categories, keep working on them until they're as simple as possible and easy to remember. That's a good way to get started.
0: Do you have examples of items from each category, maybe that you've adopted or you've helped other people with?
1: Sure. I always start my day with a 16-ounce or more glass of vegetable juice. I never eat chocolate. Now, when I say this, it doesn't mean that anybody else should do these same things. Just as an example, I can have pasta on a day when I've exercised for more than two hours. Usually that's once or twice a month when I'm hiking. And I can have all the leafy green vegetables that I want to unsauced.
0: And the key thing here that I heard you say earlier that I'm connecting to is that you really own this. It isn't in any way something that you're following because someone else told you to do it, right? There's zero lack of ownership of this plan.
1: Right. You're probably the only person that I know who's read more about healthy eating than I have. So I've always had an extraordinary interest in what the heck are we supposed to eat But I don't have the expertise necessary to tell other people what I think that is. I'm very certain what it is for me. I've amassed it through all the different books that I've read and people that I've talked to and experts that I've paid to consult for me. But in the end, I don't 100% agree with any of them. And I 100% agree with what I put together on my plan. And that's what I follow.
0: What would be the implications of, let's say you agree 99.3% with someone, but you adopt their plan 100%? What are the implications for your own compliance and sanity? Because I think a lot of people do that, right? Dr. Esselstyn says, no nuts, so I'm not going to have nuts. Dr. Campbell says, no smoothies, so I'm going to eliminate smoothies. And you kind of really wish you could have the nuts or the smoothies, but you're giving yourself over to an expert, but you're holding back a little bit emotionally. What's the consequence of that?
1: The implication is that if it doesn't work, you can blame the expert. That's the implication. And it's almost like setting up a situation where you're allowing the possibility of anarchy to exist. If you adopt your own System of governance. You've really thought very carefully through what your rules should be, and they cover all the different situations that you experience in your life. If you have thought that through, then if there's a problem, well, you can re examine your system of governance, but that's your responsibility. And you're much less likely to throw out everything else in that system of governance. If you adopt somebody else's system, the pig is much more alluring when it says, well, obviously we're not going to follow his laws anymore, so now anything goes.
0: See what I mean? Yeah. That millimeter of wiggle room is all the pig needs. I've heard the phrase like the camel's nose under the tent, that once you let the nose in, you're going to end up with a camel's ass in your tent in about a minute and a half. Yeah. One of the things you do in the book, and I have to say it's an intensely entertaining book, And one of the reasons is that one of the main characters is the pig. The pig speaks, right? I would say like maybe a seventh or a tenth of the dialogue of content of the book is the pig talking. And I'm curious why you gave the pig so big a megaphone in the book. Well,
1: because I wanted people to hear, to have examples of the very specific ways it was possible to fool yourself into breaking your own rules. There's no point to breaking your own rules if you're the one who gets to set them up in the first place. And you have the ability to change them with consideration and forethought, not impulsively, but with consideration and forethought. If you have the ability to change them when you want to, there's no point in breaking your own rules. But despite that, the pig exhaustively argues for an impulsive incursion. I wanted the people to hear the many different ways that that could happen. That's why I did that. Howie, there's actually another reason. The book was originally a journal. I didn't set out to write this book. Before I really had all the concepts in place and really understand the simplicity of the rules, I had to do an awful lot of journaling to figure it all out. I would say, well, go ahead, pig. Give me a reason to eat chocolate talk with Give me a reason to go binge today. And I listened for what it said, and all of the different things that it said wound up in my journal. So I had a lot of examples of pig talk. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why I gave the pig a big megaphone. Plus, people seem to really like it. They kind of got a smirk and they understand. A lot of people say, yeah, I've talked to myself like that too.
0: It's uncanny how I was reading the thoughts in my head. (laughs) Very often, I wasn't even consciously aware of them. But you said, you know, at this point, the pig is going, ha, well, Glenn says this, but we all know that. It's like, yeah, like there's part of me, you're a very dear friend. I value your advice. And some part of me is going, this is bullshit. Right. (laughs) You know, (laughs) completely irrationally is like fighting for its life. And by you giving a voice to that, I was able to see it in that gestalt fashion, separate from myself, just this crazy voice run amok that really doesn't have my best interests at heart at all. Yeah. So one of the things that I read a lot, and I do a lot of reading about habits and behavior change, and a lot of people talk about the importance of environment, And we obviously know that that's true, that when you're in certain environments, you behave differently than when you're in other environments. But a lot of people, including myself, tell ourselves this story. I can't have chocolate in the house because if I have it, I'll eat it. If the peanut butter is in the front of the fridge and the fruit is in a disgusting drawer at the bottom, I'm going to just get a spoon and eat the peanut butter. It seems like you're saying that even when the environment is stacked against us, it doesn't have to defeat us.
1: Right. Because if you're not the kind of person that eats peanut butter at home, then you can make that decision and you just never eat peanut butter at home. But that doesn't mean you should keep peanut butter at home or keep it out where you can see it because it's just a lot more comfortable, just a lot easier to go through life without stimulating cravings that you're not going to be able to indulge in. It's kind of like why watching pornography is a waste of time because you're not really going to be able to be with that person and you're just stimulating your biological cravings and... Causing yourself a lot of frustration, so that doesn't mean it's a sin. It just means it's really a waste of time, and it's going to make you uncomfortable. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So that having foods around that you're not going to eat is it's like, yeah, it's pornography. It's almost like wearing a, a hair shirt. <laughs> 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 I've never thought of the two in the same breath before. Let's talk about cravings. I know there's also a lot of people in this industry, in this movement, who feel like, as you said, the foods are so engineered to be addictive. We're in essence helpless against it. And they'll talk about brain biochemistry. I I used to go to a um, chiropractic neurologist who talked about if my brain is low on sugar, it will convince me that that bar of dark chocolate is the thing that that I need to eat to save the world. (laughs) Right. So what about the biochemistry of cravings and the neurology? Can that be defeated with this? I don't eat pig slop attitude.
1: Yes, it can. But The caveat would be that they're not wrong in what they're saying, but all that occurs after the first bite. If you're really having trouble conditionally managing, what I'm finding as I'm starting to coach people through this is that most people will do anything rather than put one of their pig's favorite treats on the never list. And I tell them that's fine, but just be aware that if you can't manage it conditionally, then it's probably going to be a lot easier to do it never because biochemically, every time that you indulge in one of those treats, you're reinforcing those reward pathways and making the biochemical craving stronger. But if you never do that, that goes away fairly quickly. Never is a lot easier than sometimes with the types of foods that you're talking about. And I think that which foods those are for which people is very individualistic. I think there are some people that are perfectly capable of having a few bites of a chocolate bar and wrapping it up really neatly and putting it back in the closet. And I've never been one of those people, right? On the other hand, I could have a couple of bites of potato chips if I wanted to. I don't really like how it makes me feel, but I could do that. And there are other people who couldn't do that.
0: Let me uh, sort of play devil's advocate a little bit. Maybe I am, and maybe I'm not. <laughs> but I, I noticed that I uh, when I'm nervous about what I'm going to say, I couch it in terms of devil's advocate. If we get to decide who we are, couldn't you decide to be the person who could have a bite of chocolate and put it away? You could. And
1: if you're able to do that, then I would encourage you to do so because I think that food should be enjoyable and we should be able to make choices to include some foods for enjoyment, even if they're not so healthy in our lives. So I absolutely would encourage you to do that if that's something that you believe you can do. And just be aware that if it becomes too much of a struggle, just experiment with putting it on the never list and see what happens.
0: It's almost like putting something on the never list actually can turn into an act of self-kindness as opposed to what it feels like an act of self-denial. I think you talk about this near the end of the book, this idea that there's two ways to deprive yourself. Do you talk about that? Because that was big for me.
1: I got that originally from Janine Roth. I expand on that a lot. But there are two types of deprivation. For example, there's the deprivation of not having chocolate bars, never having a chocolate bar again, but there's also the deprivation of all the things that I can have if I don't have a chocolate bar again, like the confidence that comes from having low triglycerides and knowing that I'm not going to have a heart attack and having the thin and healthy body that I want and not having the added uh, adrenal stimulation that comes with that and not having the sugar crash that's associated with that and, and the confidence when you choose to eat the chocolate bar, you're depriving yourself of the confidence that comes from being able to not have the chocolate bar. The goal here is not to always take the most ascetic, or is that the word, the most depriving option. The goal is to recognize that there are two types of deprivation, to lay them out in detail for yourself and make a conscious choice which one you'd like to choose. And sometimes you'll choose to have the chocolate bar, and that's okay.
0: One thing you said that goes against a lot of what I read and was, it was another breath of fresh air is you do not need to be comfortable to stick to your food plan. And you take it further and say, you do not need to be comfortable. <laughs> right? Talk about our society's relationship with comfort and what you think is wrong with it.
1: I want you to be comfortable. I don't want you to feel hungrier than you need to feel. I don't want you to be unhappy. I, I want you to be comfortable, but you don't have to be. It was very important for me to discover that my pig had to know I was willing to experience any level of discomfort to stay with the commitment because otherwise it would think oh come on already you got to do this you got to have the chocolate you just got it this is too uncomfortable and i eventually said well so what so what if i'm uncomfortable what's the big deal I think that people believe that we have to baby ourselves to such an extent that we never feel uncomfortable and that that is really a setup for, well, you're really going to have to indulge. We all have the ability to tolerate physical discomfort when it's important to us enough. And I have an example in the book about suppose an evil dictator said that they're going to watch the person you love most in the world forever and as long as you don't have chocolate again they're going to leave them alone but if you do have even one bite then they're going to kidnap them and take them to their country and make sure that they sit in a dark cell the rest of their life and in the original version of the book i said that they were going to be tortured but then people got mad at me about that i said isn't it kind of a no-brainer that you won't have chocolate again in that situation and it's just a thought experiment to show that we're perfectly capable of tolerating comfort if what we love most in the world depends upon it. Does it really have to be that extreme that we're going to lose our loved one to an evil dictator that's going to torture them? Couldn't it just be that we love ourselves enough to give ourselves this gift?
0: And I love that. It's got echoes of the Stoics, whom I I really enjoy One thing I realized, so for the past couple of years, my son and I have been doing a form of martial art called Sistema, a Russian form. And the unofficial motto is don't feel sorry for yourself. So there's a lot of work around tolerating discomfort, tolerating pain. We do a lot of work outside where we're sort of itchy, rolling around on grass, letting mosquitoes have their way with us so we're not constantly being distracted from the work. And what I discovered when I allowed myself to be uncomfortable is how much my comfort is actually a prison that when I'm sitting at home at 72 degrees Fahrenheit with the proper humidity and ambient noise levels that I can handle that some part of me is running this very Ram intensive fear program that I'm going to lose it. And that once I accustom myself to like, okay, I'm going to take a cold shower. I'm going to do a push-up for a minute and a half, I don't care how much it hurts. I'm not going to stop. My brain's not going to stop me. I'm going to live with this discomfort. Then I can relax when I'm comfortable. I don't have to worry about losing it because I know it's not the worst thing in the world. And it makes the comfort much more enjoyable.
1: That's interesting. Do you know the joke about the guy that was banging his head against the wall and they asked him what he was doing? He said, what well, feels really good when he stops? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a really good point, though. I also think that our fear of losing the comfort prevents us from doing things and taking risks that will expand our lives.
0: So one of the big issues you deal with, and I imagine this is something you dealt with with yourself and you're dealing with with the clients that you're working with, is this idea of you write about how to recover from a binge. And the pig is very vociferous in these chapters, saying in my ear, see if he's writing about recovery, that means he admits that you're going to screw up. So let's go binge. Yippee. (laughs) So understanding that you're not giving people license to binge because you wrote a chapter about recovery, how do you suggest someone recovers?
1: First of all, the most important thing is to recognize that you can recover at any point. It's never too late to stop the binge and begin the recovery process. So that's the most important thing. The second most important thing is to recognize that any thoughts you have regarding continuing the binge is the pig. So if the pig beats you up and says you are way too weak, you always break your commitments, this stuff is ridiculous, you're never going to do it, we might as well just keep continuing that's the pick. If the pig says, you've already blown it for the day, you might as well have what you want because you're never going to do it again, and we'll start again tomorrow, that's the pick. So you need to get very sensitive to that voice, and that voice is supercharged once a binge begins. If you do nothing else but learn to hear that voice so you recover more quickly then I think you would have taken away a wonderful benefit from the interview because the screw-it-I-blew-it thought that occurs for most people when they break their rules, that does more damage than anything else, I think. You've made a mistake and you've decided that it's time to recover. There are really only two things that can cause a binge. You want to figure out what caused the binge. The first one is what you'd call a pig attack, and that just means that you didn't hear the pig's voice. The pig squealed something, it was appealing enough to you that you decided it was your thought and not its thought, and you went out and you binge. you did what the pig wanted you to do. And so if that was the case, you need to identify what that thought was, and then you need to reassert what it is you'll never do again, so the pig knows that it has to go back into its cage. The other thing that could cause a binge is a problem with the food plan itself. Maybe it's really not nutritionally complete. And so for that reason, one of the pig's arguments held more sway because the pig will always tell you that you need this to survive. You can't pay attention to anything else. You absolutely have to do this right now. It's a survival need. And if there's any part of you that believes that intellectually, really upon full consideration, then you need to go back and adjust your food plan so that you have that full confidence in the nutritional completeness of your plan. Uh, And those are really the two things that can cause a binge. And once you've examined them and you feel like your plan is solid and you know what the pig said to talk you into it, I recommend you write this down. By the way, don't just say it out loud, but write it down so that you can reference it again if you need to. Then just recommit. I will never binge again. I will never eat chocolate again, whatever your particular rule was, and go forward. Let it go. The only thing you need to do to not binge is not binge. I know that sounds really profound, but all you have to do to not binge is not binge. And howie, to recognize that any anxiety or doubt or concern you're feeling about whether you'll binge again at that point is coming from the pig. The anxiety about binging again at that point is really based upon the pig's plan to binge. I got out. It was delicious. Give me more. That's what the anxiety about a binge is based on.
0: Right, And that's one of the things that you named a voice in my head, which is kind of a voice of defeated pessimism. Whenever I try to tackle a problem that I haven't been able to tackle in the past, the really loud voice goes, you know, who are you fooling? This is how it's always going to be. We've proven that. You reframe that in a very different way.
1: Well, the answer to that is that the ability to repeatedly get up after getting knocked down until you can stand up for good is a sign of character strength, not character weakness. It's a sign of resilience and persistence, not a degenerate character. But the pig would like to use it to make you think that you're too weak so that you can go forward and binge again. That's all the pig wants. It just wants to binge.
0: (laughs) The pig isn't very complicated in terms of its desires. It has one, one desire. It just wants one thing. And you explained a little bit at the beginning that it's simply a survival drive gone haywire. It's almost like, you know, it was this natural process of let's get enough food to survive. And it's kind of grown cancerous, unrestrained growth.
1: Because of the way that foods have evolved in our culture, because of all the biochemical pressure that's on us, which your friend was talking to us about. Yeah, that's true.
0: One more thing I want to ask you about, which is you talk about don't get fixated on time. And that flies in the face of a lot of what I see in terms of people who are like, you know, carrying around essentially ticking calendars of how long they have been binge free. The advice about habits, you know, don't break the chain. Where The longer you have kept a habit, the more pressure there is on you to keep the habit. You're not into that sort of counting.
1: I think it's a mistake when it comes to toxic pleasure because toxic pleasure is a pleasure that's just too strong that you need to abstain from. I think it's a mistake because it defines your life according to that pleasure. And what you really want to do is move away from it. So you don't want to be thinking about it all the time. Today is day number 12. Today is day number 13. 51 days without chocolate. Oh, boy. If you are a person who doesn't eat chocolate, then you don't walk around saying, well, it's been 51 days since I ate chocolate. You're just a person who doesn't eat chocolate. Um, How how long has it been since you robbed a bank?
0: Oh, um uh, yeah no i haven't <laughs> right. i sort of feel like i missed something no i've never robbed a bank
1: because you're not a bank robber
0: i am not i've seen too many movies it looks too hard and i wouldn't be successful and it's other people's money right i'm not that kind of person i'm joking around but obviously i'm not the kind of person who would ever rob a bank and people
1: who aren't the kind of people who haven't robbed a bank don't walk around thinking about how long it's been since they robbed a bank Right, It's the essence of how you want to define yourself. What do you want to be thinking about with regards to the habit? Is the habit there to support you in your life, or is it there only for a certain period of time until the weight of all those days is too much pressure on your shoulders and you collapse? And we put these rules in place to support our lives, not to become the focus of our lives. So I don't really think people should get up in the town square and say, you know, it's been 51 days since I had chocolate. You know, some people, they want accountability and they like to share it with other people and it helps them a little bit to do that. But ultimately, I think that we are, in the end, alone with our impulses more than we are with other people with our impulses. And so we have to be comfortable managing them in a very private way. So it's not really a medal that I suggest you wear on your chest or stand up in the town square and try to get applause for. I think that it's how you define yourself. It's the kind of person you want to be. And then... Go focus on other things. You're not eating chocolate, so go accomplish something else that you really want to accomplish. All that energy and creative inspiration and all the energy that was seeking chocolate inside of you is now free to seek other things.
0: It reminds me of a a story I screw up a little bit, but I heard about Freud, who was in the presence of someone who was asked if he was a genius, the the person who was asked the question, was he himself a genius? And he said, no, no, no. And Freud remarked wryly later, if he really didn't believe he was a genius, he only would have said no once.
1: Right. Yes, he was protesting too much.
0: Yeah. Yeah there is the possibility that this stuff that is eating us alive, like it was eating you when you were doing your psychotherapy sessions and dreaming of when you could stop and eat, that it can simply become no big deal anymore. It doesn't have to be a Maginot line of willpower and strategy and environment versus an inevitable craving. It can just go away. That's what you're saying.
1: And that's almost impossible for people to believe when they're in the throes of the addiction to that particular behavior. It's almost impossible for them to believe at that time, but it is absolutely true.
0: One more question as I'm scrolling through the book. My favorite chapter is chapter 19, which you title My Personal Food Plan. And you say, what do I eat? None of your pig's business. Why is it important that we don't get in other people's pig's business?
1: Well, besides the fact that we all have our own unique physiology, I don't know that I've met any two people who have the exact same thoughts about what is healthy to eat. I think you and I would be pretty close, Howie. I think that we would have arguments as well. If you go back to the notion that everybody needs to define for themselves in order to really master their impulses, they need to define for themselves what those rules are. And then following from that definition, things that are off of their plan are pig slop and things that are on the plan are human food. One man's pig slop is another man's healthy treat. And you don't have any way of knowing what's what for that other person. You don't even know if they're willing to define a pig inside of themselves in the first place. And they feel very offended if you attack what they're eating as pig slop when it's not for them. They haven't even defined, they're just going to look at you like you're crazy.
0: I would have found that advice very helpful when I first adopted a version of my current way of eating, because part of my energy was devoted to making sure everybody else in my family and in concentric circles out into the world ate the way I did. And I'm wondering if that's the pig in some way sabotaging me or is that something else?
1: I wouldn't say it was the pig sabotaging you. I think it's actually part of a constructive energy to eat well. The problem is that I think we're evolutionarily and culturally pressured to eat the same way as the people around us. I think that, you know, resources used to be scarce and so people had to eat the same thing. I think that, It's frightening to other people because people are prone to relinquishing responsibility for what they eat and they feel like they have to eat what's in front of them. They are prone to being angry if there is food that they feel like they shouldn't eat in front of them. They don't really have these mechanisms of resistance inside of them. And so I think that it comes from a natural constructive place inside of us to want everyone to eat the same way. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. That's what I think.
0: I think that's another place in which we can get tripped up. As soon as we have some sort of mild success, we immediately become zealots. Like, I don't walk around telling other people not to rob banks. <laughs> it's like, you know, maybe there's, there's sort of a relationship between how insecure I am about my own ability to stick to this and how hard I try to get other people to do it.
1: Yes. If you're 100% confident, this is just who you are and how you eat and you can let other people find their own journey.
0: As we're talking, it's a project, it's a website, it's a Word document. When this goes to publication sometime in August, what will, as people are listening now, how can they find out more? How can they get the book? How can they allow you to help them never binge again and screw the pig?
1: Okay. The plan is to offer the Kindle book for free during the introductory period, at least. You'll be able to find that at Never Binge Again. There'll be a link to the Amazon book right there. So that's kind of a really easy way to get started in and of itself. On the site, there will also be sample food plans. And then there will be probably some type of a very, very low cost monthly success interview club for people who want to work with the technique and hear how other people succeed and fail with it and what they can learn from that. There will be an immersion workshop a couple of times a year for people that really want to whip themselves into shape and get a plan together and never binge again, starting with an intensive kickoff weekend. I will probably offer a very limited amount of coaching, a little time constrained to be able to do too much of that, and I run a whole coaching academy. So I'll offer a limited amount of that, and then once there are enough people whom I'm confident understand how to do this and are successful with it and also have our coach training then I will offer more of that through them but for right now I want to just start with the free bucket dot again.com
0: awesome Glenn as always eye-opening and a pleasure and on behalf of the many people who are listening to this and feeling as good and empowered and clear-headed as I do thank you so much for taking the time today
1: thanks Howie it was great fun.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Your action step, if you're so motivated, is to go to neverbingeagain.com and sign up to be notified when Never Binge Again is released as a free Amazon Kindle book. And let me know what you think. I'd love to hear your comments about this interview. And if you manage to read the book, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that as well. And if you implement it in your life or would like help implementing it in your life, Um, I've coached a bunch of people through this methodology, seen incredible results. So if you're that eager to try it, uh, drop me a line, hj at plantyourself.com, and we can talk about um, working something out. In other news, um, my book, with Dr. Garth Davis, or rather his book with me, Protein Proteinaholic, is coming out next month, October 6th, to be exact. We would love to get a ton of pre-orders for a bunch of reasons. First of all, all those pre-orders show up uh, in the first week sales, so they can help us get onto bestseller lists. And once a book's on the bestseller list, it kind of develops its own momentum. People see it who wouldn't otherwise see it. Um, the publicist, when they see that the book is a bestseller, Um, And the the publisher put more resources behind marketing it. And this is a book that really needs to get out there. It deals with the biggest issue that people face when they try to go plant based, which is they worry about protein. And you know plenty of plant based people who still worry about protein. You can see it on all the blogs, um, all these different articles and recipes, high protein foods, 12 ways to get your protein as a vegetarian. You know what I'm talking about. And while it's well-meaning, it's wrong and it's unnecessary. And it's stopping people from overcoming their addictions to meat. So if you go to proteinaholic.com, you can click on any of the links there. We've got links to Amazon, uh, IndieBound, uh, Barnes and Noble, a bunch of other booksellers. Um, so if you get your copy through that, we'll have a good record and our publisher um, the other reason we'd like to have a ton of pre-sales is the publisher's waiting to see how sales go before committing to an audiobook. And I promise you, you would love to hear Dr. Garth Davis reading this book in his own voice. If you like this podcast and want to support it, one of the best ways is to go to iTunes and leave a review. Give it some stars. The more reviews I get, the higher it goes in the ranking, so more people can see it and get the message and join the movement. You can also share it, of course, on social media, uh, email it to friends, um, buy a giant laser and um, project it onto the moon at full moon, whatever works for you. Uh, You can also go to the right side of uh, plantyourself.com, scroll down a bit, and if you're so motivated to support this labor of love, you can uh, drop me a gift one time or recurring to help support the podcast and its production costs and my considerable time in putting it together. Garden is mostly done. We've had uh, just okra, basil and eggplant this week. We've pulled out most of the tomatoes and very exciting starting to sow the fall crops, you know, the um, the greens, the roots. And we're waiting with bated breath to see we had a, an amazing crop of sweet potatoes, at least in terms of the leaf growth and the vines on the ground we don't know yet what that translates into so uh, in the next few weeks we'll find out and i'll keep you posted so i hope whatever is growing in your life that the roots are deep and the roots can support it and as always be well my friends